I was a terror since the public school era. Bathroom passes, cutting classes, squeezing asses. Smoking blunts was a daily routine since 13. A chubby nigga on the scene. I used to have the trade deuce and the deuce deuce in my bubble goose. Now I got the Mac in my knapsack, lounging black, smoking sacks up and axe and sidekicks with my sidekicks, rocking fly kicks. Honey's wanna chat, but all we wanna know is where the party at. And can I bring my cat? If not, I hope I don't get shot. Better throw my vest on my chest, cause niggas is a mess. It don't take nothing but front for me to start something. Bugging and bucking at niggas like I was duck hunting. Dumbing out just me and my crew, cause all we wanna do is. What's up, Fat Leets, and welcome to episode 9 of the Fat Boy Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. And um, I am Fat Boy, here checking in on you guys. Um, damn, I fucking stole that from Burr, I can't be saying that. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Fat Boy Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, Instagram at Fat Boy BJJ. Uh, post just life whatever's going on nothing uh i'm not trying to sell you slim tees or any of that bullshit so just pictures of shit that i do in my life and shit that i like uh seeing and whatever um so this weekend i was i was up north again in uh up north in orlando compared to down here in fort myers that's up north so Spent some time in Orlando, um, had a conference I was at, um, for the AV profession on today. It's a, it's a conference, it's called Infocom, and it's for just anything AV, basically, um, in the consumer world. Not consumer, but as in, uh, like commercial projects and Definitely not to be confused with CES, which is more consumer, like end user base. This is consumer, as in, um, when you're looking at, at, at just a high, bigger vertical. Anyways, was um there all weekend in, at the convention center in Orlando, and you know walked that thing a couple times, and forget how big that thing is. Um, Well, anyways, <clears throat> one of the biggest, uh, I guess, showrunners or exhibitors of the show is a company called Crestron, and uh, they make some awesome. This is not a plug. They make some great, you know, products of uh, AV wise and in, in the AV world and, and, and stuff that I tend to specify. Anyways, every year um, they throw their party, um, and it's a big. It's a big hoopla every year. And this year was no different. Um, they've been doing it since like 2000 and either 2000 or 2001. 2001, yeah, 17. This is 17. Um, and they had... Uh, the act this year was um, Dave Navarro. Dave Navarro's band, uh, Royal Machines. And while I probably would never pay to go see one of his concerts man i got to lie. i'm so glad i got to see him play live i mean fuck I'm, what he can do on the guitar is fucking crazy and being able to say that i you know i seen him live i seen him live was is an experience um but the you know 
it, it wasn't just him. It was um, Mark McGrath, uh, Sebastian Bach, Chris Cheney, Robin Zander, and um, even Juliet Lewis. Like she was there. She did a couple songs and and like I said, never would go pay to see them individually or or anything, but. I'm so glad I got to see them live because it, it, it was a, a v- awesome show. Very awesome show. That was, uh, when was that? Thursday night. Then, what did I do Friday? I don't even remember what I did Friday night. Oh, that's right. I watched uh, I watched the kids while uh, let my wife and uh, my sisters, uh, they all went out to, to the movies, the little girls night, so I stayed with a uh, with the boys and just uh we went to my buddy's house chilled a little bit and went back home um watched a movie with him and that was about it um saturday we had this uh quinceanera that we went to and they're a little behind and that's uh that's all i want to say about that but what really amazed us was after you know the um the quinceanera she did her her dances and whatnot they uh they opened the dance floor and uriah's sitting there looking at us and he goes they opened the dance floor can can i go i look at my wife and she looks at me and i go yeah i go he starts Doing a capoeira breakdance in the middle of this quinceanera, and he's going, he's doing handstands, he's, um, you know, doing a Jenga handstand, cartwheel handstand, and then, um, elephant stands, and just going back and forth, and and it was hilarious, and and we. We were laughing because he's never done anything like that. He's actually very, he's been up until this point very shy, and and to to see him open up like that was awesome. But we're just like, hey, buddy, um, we kind of not need you to do that right now because we don't want you to kick over these lights or kick anybody. And and it's so, man, I'm sitting there laughing. I'm like, I don't want to stop him, but. You know, I, I I know the the parent and the parent in me needs to, but then again, I'm sitting there like, no, like let him be. Um, so we kind of pulled him aside and and had him do it uh, closer to the table where there wasn't as many people. Um, but he was just he was ecstatic and he was just happy that he was the break dance. So I guess. Um, that's the new thing my son's gonna be into, so gonna gonna see if there's uh, any places around that I can take him. I know I have a friend that she does, um, I guess like hip hop chore- choreographed hip hop stuff, and and whatever. Let him see if he likes doing something. Uh, I like uh, if he wants to try something. I like him at least knowing that there's other people out there and. And he can see that, you know, there's there's a bunch of different things he can do and choose to do from. 
And then, well, Sunday was uh, Father's Day, and uh, I got a I got an awesome uh, Father's Day gift. My wife surprised me with uh, some uh, Star Wars Tie Fighter um, and X Wing uh, bed sheets for our king size bed. Um, I always joked with her. We got uh, Uriah one of those uh, Star Wars beds from uh, Rooms to Go. That's uh, a Millennium Falcon, and I always joke with her. I go, look, if they got a king, we're gonna buy it. We're gonna have a Millennium Falcon bed, and she, um, obviously, was being an adult and laughed it off, um, knowing that uh, that they didn't have a king size bed, and and she didn't have to tell me, no, you're not gonna get it. So. Compromise, I guess she she buys me uh Star Wars bed sheets and uh, I can still be a, a a nerdy guy with a with Star Wars bed sheets. It was um it was an all around awesome day though. Went to a, an old friend's house. Uh, his sons about my son's age and we were there with my nephews. My sisters went and uh, we were just enjoying the day. The kids were in his pool. He was showing me around his house, showing me his uh, canal and. And, um, you know, proud of him. Uh, I know from from way back in the way, from from the day in, in the old neighborhood in Chicago, and I don't, you know, if you would have asked me back then, first of all, I gotta admit, I didn't remember who the fuck the guy was. Um, and my sister's like, oh, you know, kept telling me stories, and I would remember the stories, and I guess... I would omit this person and maybe because he fucking bullied me a little bit, maybe because he was going to call me a little fat. So I, I don't know. But, um, eventually I was like, Oh shit, that's right. I know who he is. And, um, but like I said, a, a cool guy, but I didn't, uh, or at least now I can say he's a cool guy, but, um, I didn't know, um, he would be here, you know, at this, at this time, if you would have asked me, you know, 30 odd years ago, or at least 25 years ago, hey, where's this person going to be? I would have been like, I don't fucking care. You know, some, somewhere else, obviously, than, than here. And now, um, we kind of realize how, how close we are. for the baby girl to get here i mean we're almost within uh within the last two months and man i guess i guess you can always say you're never ready but i don't feel fucking ready i mean it is what it is to say uh, but i guess you're never ready I, i don't think i don't think that you ever go into it being a hundred percent ready. And, and if you say you do, you don't know what the fuck you're expecting or you don't know what to expect. And you know, you don't think it's going to be so hard. Um, but I can't wait. I don't know. I am. I'm staring at, uh, in, in my little office where I have my, uh, I won't even say podcast studio. I'll just say 
my microphone set up with my mixer. I'm looking in the closet, um, which at one point in time used to be my gee closet. Um, had several gees and, and a couple suits of mine and, and some shirts, some older shirts that I used to wear. And now is completely filled with um, my, 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 my daughter's uh, clothes. So I just... Um, Admiring the fact that I slowly but surely losing more and more storage space. But no, in, in all seriousness, I am excited and I can't wait um, for the birth of, uh, of my baby girl. Speaking of which, I um, sort of touched on that with uh, my guest on this week's podcast, Ms. Uh, Kaylee Mancha. Um, she is someone I met, um, and started following on Instagram and, uh, she's, uh, on the career side of a, of a yogi and, um, I liked what she was doing, um, promoting, um, yogi, uh, I'm sorry, promoting yoga and for people who, um, have, unconventional bodies and um in what i would call fat boys so uh i admired what she was doing that and um uh it appears that the uh admiration was uh, mutual um uh and a couple um a couple months ago i talked to her i would tell her i was starting a podcast and and uh, she would uh she would be a guest and and she you know said yes and uh she happened to um had been uh training for a um tough mother yeah tough mother not the smart race right no tough mother it was a tough mother she was uh training for a tough mother so it'd be um it'd be a little little difficult because you know she was trying to spend her extra time training and and I understood and so um she had completed that last week and so I caught up with her uh earlier in the week um and we sat down and we talked um like I said a little bit about the birth of my daughter and and whatnot being that she's a doula so it's kind of you know a topic for her and I don't mind talking uh about the uh, birth of my daughter, it, like I said, I'm 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 pretty excited about it. So, uh, whenever I had the opportunity to talk about it, I'll talk about it. We spoke a lot also about a uh, uh, mental health and and more not necessarily uh, in anybody else, but you know sometimes in in ourselves and um and just the way we perceive things. Um, I hope it was uh it's interesting and something you'll enjoy. I want to um definitely have her back on I the whole thing that we didn't touch on and she's a vegan and and I wanted to talk to her about that um not that I'm against it or I'm just I I'd learn more. Uh I'm not necessarily against, you know, vegan or vegetarianism or, or any of that I'm just I like to be informed and you know I'm not saying that uh I'll never eat 
that type of food because sometimes, uh, you know, you want to try something different, and that's uh, that's good. So, without further ado, um, here's uh, the podcast with my guest, Kayla Mancha, um, and you can find her um, at K and me. Um, I'll put her uh, link um, to her website and her Instagram account on my Instagram and, and tweet that out. Um, so, here you go. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, today my guest is Kaylee Mancha. She is a yogi, a doula, and a mental health specialist, um, I'll say. Um, and she is um, just launching her new website, uh, K and Me. Um, thank you for coming on, Kaylee. How you, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great, great. Um, I'm, I've been following you now for several months and I'm, I love what you represent and, and, and you know, what you, the, the vibe you put out and, and for the wellness community. Thank you. I feel like, um, we've been following each other's journey for at least a year now. So like, and you're, you're always so supportive and that's really what Instagram is about for me is finding community. And when I started my Instagram, what was like four and a half years ago now, I had no idea the implications and the journey that it would put me on. So I'm so excited that I get to talk to quote unquote, one of my followers <laughs> um, and, and talk about wellness. Wellness is so exciting for me to spread the word about. As, as my, myself too. I mean, obviously, um, you can see that uh, I started in the wellness game very late in life and after uh, not living so well. But, um, you know, that's all changing. Well, and I also think that we have to be compassionate with ourselves when we talk about wellness because it's not like one day we just magically decide to be well. We have to come to that knowledge eventually, either through experience or some type of education. And so when people talk about their wellness journeys with me, they often say, oh, it wasn't until I was whatever amount of years old, but we have to learn what wellness looks like and what wellness feels like before we can embark on any journey. So I don't think you're late to the game. You're right on time. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, sometimes I feel like I, I joined jujitsu late, but I, I know what you mean. And, um, it's, that feeling of um, you finally see, you, you know, you just open your eyes and you're like, you know, like myself, I had a, in, don't want to dwell on this too much, but I had a revelation not too long ago about my job and I hated my desk job. And I figured, I feel, I felt like my desk job was the reason I was overweight. And it wasn't that, it was the stuff I wasn't doing because I was blaming it on work, mm. you know, or visiting you know way back in when i first started you know i would drink like a case of uh, of soda in from the vending machine a day and I, mm-hmm. obviously if i was doing that and not taking care of myself it was going to happen it, you know it would have happened you know if i was doing a different type of job as well yeah and it sounds like you gained some insight about that because our circumstances aren't as relevant as our habits because people in extraordinary circumstances 
circumstances that, you know, ideally would set them up to fail, some people succeed greatly under them because it's about habits and our insights into the habits that we're choosing to perpetuate and keep and what does and does not work for us. Wow. So insightful. That's so true. <laughs> so have you... And it's, it's hard. Have you always uh, been into yoga or... I get that question a lot and it makes me laugh because um, I would say that I was active in high school. I was on the swim team. I was in dance most of my life. And I didn't even know what yoga was. I don't. I didn't come from a very privileged background, um, low socioeconomic status on the east side of Las Vegas. And therapy, the word wellness, yoga, all of that was very foreign to me. And I went off to college, and college, I was the first one in my family to go to college. It was, again, a foreign concept. I thought it was just school. And when I was in college, I learned about, obviously, all the things that I'm involved in now, and um, one of those things was yoga because I was pregnant. I got pregnant when I was 20 in my last semester of college, of undergrad, and I was told it was great to help you with labor. So I decided to start doing some yoga because I wanted a natural birth, and when that birth happened, my life happened. I had an infant now. I went off to grad school. There was no more time for yoga because, again, it was for labor only. Mm-hmm. And then um, when I went to grad school, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, so I moved from my home in Las Vegas with an infant and um, by myself and embarked on a, a journey of many insights, I'll say, and reached my lowest health. I was doing crisis work as a mental health therapist. I had gained a lot of weight, um, I was just really stressed. And so after about three years of that, at my heaviest weight, I weighed more during that experience than the day that I gave birth to my daughter. Um, I went back to Las Vegas to kind of get my bearings. And I had gotten a letter in the mail about events in Las Vegas and being wanting to connect with my community again. I said, you know, why not? And one of them was a half marathon. And I said, oh, gosh, I can't even run 30 seconds, and this, event's in, this event is in four months. F it, I'll do it. And so um, I said, okay, I got to obviously get into a gym. And it wasn't about losing the weight so much as it was pushing myself to do something that I didn't think I could do. So I went to the gym, and I remembered, okay, it's hard to breathe while running. So what helps me breathe? Yoga. So I got into yoga, and I was doing gym yoga classes at the time, and I didn't see people who looked like me. I'm really curvy. I'm Latina. There weren't people that I identified with both in the class or that were teaching. And it was awkward because, you know, they'd tell me to get into a position, an asana, and I'm like, well, you know, my butt's really big. I wonder if people can see through my pants. And I wasn't really focused on – I didn't feel like I could fit in. But I focused on the breath rather than the movement. And within that three and a half months of training, I ran my first half marathon, and then the rest was history. I definitely went into yoga for the breath rather than the exercise, which a lot of people are attracted to yoga for is the exercise portion of it. And when I realized that I could build community by creating it, 
I decided I was going to become a yoga instructor and I was going to teach yoga in a way that welcomed all bodies and honored all abilities and that nobody in my class would ever feel like they didn't belong there. So uh, about six months or so after I ran that half marathon, I decided I was going to do a Tough Mudder and I was running five and 10 Ks, a couple of them every weekend, not because I liked running, but because I liked the challenge. And yoga was the place that I found peace, peace of mind, peace within my body, self-acceptance. I, it was my form of therapy. It was my form of religion. And it, was, it became a spiritual journey for me. And so now when I teach yoga and people say things like, well, I'm not really flexible. Or um, when I was working in South Central recently, I was in L.A. for a year, um, my students would say, oh, but yoga is for white people. <laughs> Veganism is for white people. And I'm like, well, lucky for you, you know, I'm Mexican and I'm doing yoga and I'm a vegan. Um, and so I think it's about breaking stereotypes that yoga isn't the Lululemon blonde advertisement that we see. Um, yoga is a practice that is available to anybody who wants to be present within themselves. And that's my my sole mission with teaching yoga. It's it's funny that you say that because I myself, you know, I'm raised a single mother home um, in Chicago. You know, low socioeconomic status as well, and we I always had that thought too. You know, it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's newly white people. That's that's what mm-hmm. it is. And, and, you know, but. Many, not many years ago, but you know, when I when I started doing jujitsu, I started um, learning and, and, and listening to other people, and watching videos of other people, and you know, and, and Hicks and Gracie. I don't know if you know, but he was a mm-hmm. big proponent of yoga, and yeah. um, mm-hmm. and his son Kron, I mean, what they can do with their diaphragm and, and breath is crazy. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then you know, like other guys um, that that I. Uh, admire like you know joe rogan talks about it and and i tried it i've uh tried it with uh uh an instructor here in orlando and um well when i lived in orlando and we would do uh yoga and, and it was more for our breath because mm-hmm. in jujitsu if as long as you can breathe you're still in the fight mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean you know if you're, I- if you're comfortable in a choke and you, you can still kind of breathe you're good Well, and yoga is the practice of breath. And the reason that we have asana or yoga poses, the reason they were created was to help connect our breath to our body, to create self-awareness, to put us in a place of being present within our bodies to meditate because that's how you reach spiritual enlightenment. And so yoga isn't about the movement. It's about being present in our bodies, which oftentimes is, learning how to breathe properly, learning how to recognize the sounds and feelings within our body. And it really is that simple. How, um, how often do you get somebody my size or, or anything that's interested and in, in afraid to try yoga because of um, the stereotype? That, you know, you have to be a certain way to move or, or to do yoga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get a lot of beginners, and I think the universe brings you um, people that 
you need in your life. And I'm brought beginners in my belief to remind me why I teach yoga. And a lot of the people I teach, they say to me before class starts, I can't even touch my toes, just saying, as if they need to explain their bodies to me. And I remind them that that's not what yoga is about. And yoga isn't a competition. So I think the first thing that happens when I have a person coming to yoga, regardless of their size or ability, is saying off the bat, you you don't get extra points for being an all-star student, and there's no perfect way to do yoga. It's about showing up, and all I'm going to ask you to do is show up today for yourself. And so, you know, my classes look different. I have, I've taught um, a wellness workshop at a boys and girls club uh, near UNLV, which is a pretty diverse low-income neighborhood, and I'd say those 5 through 12-year-olds were some of the most insightful students I've ever had. They were amazing, and awesome. um, none of them could touch their toes. So, <laughs> you know, I've worked with little kids, and then I've worked with people in their 70s, and, you know, regardless, again, of your age or your body size, there's always a space for you. And so... Sometimes people say, well, you know, I can't get into the poses that I see you do on Instagram. And I'm like, Instagram is not yoga. Instagram is about sharing community. It's a, it's my personal journal, and I don't expect people to mimic or model the things that I do. And so in my classes, I offer alternatives or modifications, not as not because I believe that modifications are weaknesses or less than posture to me a modification is another way to honor yourself and I bring blocks I bring chairs I've done chair yoga people don't even know that's the thing mm-hmm. um, but again there's so many different ways to modify it that no matter who comes in my class I'm always prepared absolutely to bring it to them that's amazing I, I, I know and that's one of the hardest things I think as Somebody and and I'm only speaking that because you know I'm in that position or I was when when you're overweight w- one of the scariest things to do is to try something new and to try something where there's fit and active people doing it and and you no matter you can be the most confident person as, ever but you're going to think man these people are going to laugh at me and, yeah and it's, and, and it's that mentality you know sometimes that that keeps us away from bettering ourselves. And I, I can totally understand that because as a curvy woman, I am very mindful of the presence of my body. So I know that because I have a larger chest and a larger bottom, no matter what shape I am, whether, you know, I'm at my ideal weight because I've been training super hard or I'm at a comfortable weight, regardless, I know people look at me. And so when I was training to run, it had nothing to do with if my body could do it. It was mental for me. It was reminding myself that no matter how much I jiggle when I run, nobody's looking at me. Nobody is judging me. And if they are, I don't care. I don't know them. They have no impact on my life. And so it takes a lot for me to push myself physically, not because it's hard, but because, like you said, you're constantly aware of your body. And, you know, if I'm running, there's fit people around me everywhere. And they're running five-minute miles, and the fastest mile I've ever done is a 10-minute mile, but that's my best. And yoga is the same way. You know, I've been practicing for years now, and there's still poses that elude me. 
Uh, I refused to do handstands after I received a recommendation from an acupuncturist that, you know, it was, he asked me, he said, you know, you're here for an injury and you want to fix this injury so you can do more handstands to potentially injure yourself again. Is that yoga or is that ego? And so I have to remind myself that um, regardless of the activity, that I'm worth that self-care. And so it doesn't matter who's in that room, who's watching. It's about me taking care of myself. And I and that's the whole point of any activity, right? It's doing the things that we love to do mm-hmm. so that we can live a happy, healthy life, whatever that looks like for us. You, you just... And it's it's not a nerve, but you just hit something home to me personally because you you mentioned the handstands and and about you know whether it's ego or yoga. And a year ago, I had a, a wrist surgery, um, mm. and they removed the bone, and I have a plate, and I have eight screws. And there is a lot of things that I'm limited to do now because of that wrist. And I'm, and I don't know if it's this is as far as it's going to get, or like the doctor said, you know, up to a year, you may get some more uh, movement out of it. But you kind of just, <laughs> you're right. I, I don't know if you know. I have maybe accept the fact that this is all I'm going to be able to do, and just work on. I maintain this, you know what I mean? Like not trying to push it and not trying to, um, for instance, uh, overhead squats are, are mm-hmm. really different, difficult for me to do right now because of the way I have to hold the barbell and because my wrist doesn't move sideways. So I can't extend mm-hmm. it and be on the bar. So it's, so it's stuff like that where it's, I want to do it again, but maybe I'm not going to be able to do it again. One part of part of yoga, part of life in general, is accepting that our body has limitations and realizing that in accepting those limitations, we are actually honoring our, our body and ourselves. And we're able to do so much more when we can accept that there are some things that we can't change. And finding creative ways to work within our bodies or our circumstances to make it work for us. And so maybe that that type of squat is not for you anymore. But there's other things that you can explore that accommodate your current abilities. Okay. So I have a question on that. So I say, you know, I have to accept my body and whatnot. But at what point does it, and I'm, you know, I'm intrigued because at what point do I start making excuses? You know, does it become, you know, this is accepting, 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 and then it's not just excuses. Right. And, you know, it's a really good point that you're bringing up because, you know, I I say that I'm a, a supporter and an advocate for the body positive movement. And that means, you know, I hear people debate, like, how can you say that you accept your body and you want to change it at the same time? Aren't those two completely different ideals? How can you embrace both of those and say that you're body positive? Because if you were so body positive, 
you would be happy with the way that you were. And I get that part where I think what you're speaking to is complacency and saying, well, I just can't move my wrist, so that wasn't meant for me, so I'm just not going to try. And I think the balance in this is that we can accept our current conditions and current circumstances. That'll bring us peace in this moment. That doesn't mean that we can't try. That doesn't mean that we can't get creative. That doesn't mean that because we're accepting our bodies now that we don't want more for it later. But it sounds like there's a part of you that still is in the healing process, whether that's mental mental or your actual physical risk. And so I think we have to heal those parts of ourselves before we can push ourselves to be great. And the minute that we stop pushing ourselves, I think, is the fear that you're speaking to about having it become an excuse. For example, um, in that half marathon I trained for, I tore a meniscus in my knee. Well, yeah, my running is definitely impacted by that. But I two days ago, I finished my fourth Tough Mudder. So it's about, honor, again, at that fourth Tough Mudder, I didn't run the whole 11 miles because I knew that I had to get through it with my knee and I wanted to respect my knee because I still have to walk around after that. But I trained in a way that honored my body. I accepted that you know, maybe I can't do as many weighted squats as I want, but I can do alternate exercises to get to where I want to be. Did Did you have the meniscus fixed or not? I have not. I oh, wow. was told that I could do the surgery, but um, if I did the surgery, there's a good chance that it could come back given that I'm still very active. Um, it kind of does. Um, I, I myself had a meniscus surgery in 2013, and it's... Not as bad as it was, but there's still some pain, and, you know, it's never perfect. I only ask it because I got to a point where it was, I mean, horrible. I would walk, and, and my knee would just, would either lock or not lock. Mm. It, it was the craziest thing. So sometimes I'm walking, and I get stiff leg, or, or mm-hmm. the next I try to take a step, and I collapse. So that's interesting well, that you're able to do that. Well, there was a point where I was all ego in my attempt to overcome my fear of running in public and challenging myself. And like I said, I was doing five out of 10 Ks every week and, you know, doing tough mutters. And I finally got to a place where I realized I didn't have to prove anything to anybody because at the end of the day, like I need this me 10 years from now, 50 years from now, like I needed to function for me. And so, mm-hmm. um, I had to take a step back and say, you know, what's important to me? How can I heal my body and grow my body? And that's, again, where yoga came in for me. It was coming to the mat and realizing, you know, that pose, it just doesn't, it doesn't do right by me. It doesn't help my knee heal. But this pose, this pose makes my knee stronger. And so, again, it's about that, that fine line between allowing yourself to heal and allowing yourself to grow that I think is hardest for all of us, right? It is. And I've noticed, man, I've had such a messed up mentality because there's been times where I was injured. And like when I was coming back from the surgery, I literally did nothing for four and a half months. Four and a half, Mm -hmm. from June of last year to October almost. I did nothing. Nothing. I tried to do nothing. I wasn't about it. And it was, I, you complacent. I I was using that, the risk, like, oh, well, I don't want to get it injured or, you know, Whereas I kind of probably 
training something or doing something else, you know, I didn't need my wrist to be doing sit-ups. I could have done something like that. So it's, and, and you, you know, here you are, your, your, your meniscus is messed up, but you're still trying to find different positions where it will not affect your knee. And I'm over here sitting and not doing anything. Well, and I don't think that's fair to compare. Oh, no, 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 I'm not at all. Not at, <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you know, but you kind of have to see that because like you said, you have to be able to see when it's complacency or ego. And, you know, I think this ties in with um, helplessness. So as a mental health therapist, I get people who come in and they say things like, oh, you know, why should I be depressed? I have a pretty decent life and there's people out there struggling and they, you know, the saying like it could be worse. Well, mm-hmm just because it could be worse doesn't mean that the struggle that you're in isn't horrible for you. It doesn't mean that it doesn't impact you. And, you know, we learn as a culture that you should just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and succeed. And if you don't succeed, then you're a failure and it's all your fault. And so there's a, a learned helplessness that comes along with a black and white mentality. So for example, you had this surgery and I'm sure the surgery was pretty hard to deal with because it limited you in a lot of ways and maybe challenged your identity a little bit. And so the helplessness that settles in can be hard to overcome, especially when you grow up thinking that you should do it or and if you don't do it, you're a failure. It, the hard part is finding that middle ground. The hard part is finding that creative space. And until you know, someone tells us that it's even possible or shows us or until we find out that it's possible, that helplessness debilitates us in a way. And so I don't think it had anything to do with um, your lack of motivation or you making excuses for yourself as much as maybe it was, you know, that the helplessness that, that set in afterwards that you clung to because you didn't know what direction to go and you didn't know how to address your current body as it was. Wow, I think so. Interesting. Um, I had another thought when 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 it came to uh, helplessness, and when when you mentioned, you know, everybody struggles. And just you know, we tell people a lot, and, and I'm I'm guilty of this all the time. I tell people, oh well, it could be worse. Mm-hmm. Is that, and I you know, I take this you know from a lot from my parents and what is that a Hispanic thing that we're always like, well, putting down other people's struggle. You know, I don't know really what to attribute it to because I see it in so many different communities and so many different people. I. I think it's more of a Western ideology because we're so individualistic that we think support is in the form of telling people, again, they should just suck it up and pull themselves up. And a way to do that that we've learned that we think is compassionate or that is helpful is by saying, well, it could be worse. Look at all the things that you have to be grateful for. And while I definitely believe in an attitude of gratitude and I live my life waking up every day thinking about things I'm grateful for, it still doesn't help others to tell them 
when they're in a vulnerable state, that they should just be grateful that they have good things in their life. Because we all have struggles, and those struggles need to be validated as real and as important for us to move past them. And and with that, do you think it's also a Western ideology to think that if somebody seeks help or mental health, they look downed upon? There are there is evidence to suggest that there are cultural implications to that. So there is still stigma around people obtaining help, uh, mental health help. Um, a lot of it having to pertain, especially to men, men in um, cultures where gender roles are very strong. If you think about um, Hispanic cultures, African-American cultures, um, men are supposed to be machistas and tough guys. And so asking for help is looked down upon. But then I think there's also elements that have proven to be um, resiliency factors. So when a, a group of people of, of different culture, it doesn't matter what culture, it could be from you know, Latin America, Asia, what have you, when you migrate to a country, you stick with your people because that's how you build community. That's how you build safety. And so when you have an issue, you keep it within your family, within your community, because you don't want to appear vulnerable to strangers, to people that aren't comfortable or familiar with your culture and customs. And so those are practices and habits that get passed down throughout different communities. And so it is really hard um, for some cultures and communities to seek mental mental health help because there is distrust in the medical system, and reasonably so, based on historical events in this country. There's um, fears about, you know, will this person be able to help me within my belief system? So some communities don't want medication because they have holistic remedies, and will their mental health provider support that, or will their mental health provider, um, for example, report that report their quote-unquote, illegal status in this country. And so there's so many other factors when people are seeking mental health treatment other than, is this person going to be helpful? A lot of people have to consider the implications of what they share. And if you live in a smaller community versus a larger community, there's definitely stigmas no matter where you go. And um, I worked at a university at UNLV, and my students would often ask if I was going to share what they told me with their professors. And of course I wouldn't. There's confidentiality in that. The students that I worked with in South Central was at a high school and they were concerned that if they told me certain things that other people at the school or their family members would know. And again, I have to emphasize that part of my job as a therapist is to respect and honor confidentiality as long as it doesn't if someone tells me that a child or an elderly person, for example, are being hurt, I have to report that because safety is a legal and ethical obligation for my profession. But I think my role in the mental health field is to help communities that maybe have not participated in therapy or counseling services in the past due to fears or stigmas. I want to reach out to them and say, hey, this space, the space that I create for you is going to honor your cultural identity, your traditions, 
your preferences. When people come in, I say to them, I'm not, I might be knowledgeable in my profession, but I'm not an expert on you. And so together we're a team. This is us together. This isn't me telling you what to do. I don't give advice. I hear you out and we, and we collaborate together to find what wellness looks like for you. But again, I don't think that's a message that a lot of people are getting in the, in most communities. It's, it's really not. I mean, just like we talked about yoga being for yuppies and, and white people, that's, that was the mentality growing up as well, that if you, you know, sought out a therapist, you, you know, you, you had, you were crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's, so, it's about, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. It's about reframing wellness. So again, like, I'm not sure about you, but I never even heard the word wellness growing up. Wellness is something that was talked about. It was a a mentality about surviving. You know, how do you get from paycheck to paycheck to pay your bills and have a family? And so, you know, I say this often that wellness is not a luxury, it's a necessity. And so even though my kids from LA were saying, Oh, I thought yoga was for white people, what they were really saying is we think that yoga is an activity of privilege. And when people say things like, well, if you go to therapy, you're crazy, it's because most people don't know what to expect because therapy services have either been for people of privilege to go sit on a couch. This is the stereotype, you know, sit on a couch and talk about their problems and go home. Or in the past, we didn't treat people with mental illness very well. And so if you were going to go seek services, you must be really crazy. And so it's about shifting that mentality from, you know, a service of privilege, whether that's mental health, doula services, or yoga services, and saying, you deserve to feel well. Let's find a way for you to get there. Now, with that, is there also, um, I guess, pushback with people trying to seek out, you know, help, and, and, and but afraid because they don't want to be put on a on a medication and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. So people will say, "Hey, do you accept insurance?" And one of the reasons I don't accept insurance when I provide mental health services is because, say, you came in and we were having a conversation, and you said, "Oh, it's my insurance." I would have to bill your insurance and tell them after one or two sessions, what I thought your diagnosis was, which I don't think is enough time to make a diagnosis about an individual. And then based on that diagnosis, they would tell me how many sessions to give you and recommendations, um, which, so say, for example, I said, oh, I think he has depression. They'd say, oh, well, we're willing to cover five sessions. Well, that's not adequate. And that leaves a lot of therapists referring clients to psychiatrists because that client can't afford counseling after five sessions, so let's get them connected with medication. Or, on the other end, people are so afraid to come into a mental health therapist's office that they'll go to their primary care provider first, or maybe they don't even know where to start in looking for a therapist. So again, they go to their primary care provider, and their primary care provider says, well, you know, if you take the Xanax, you should be okay. Let's check in 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 a few weeks or a few months. And that's not adequate mental health care. And medications are necessary for some people and are valuable in treatment, 
but they're not the end-all be-all. And I don't think people are fully aware that there are alternative treatments for most mental illnesses. I I asked about medication um, solely because I agree with you. I don't think it's, I mean, it's so easily handed out. I mean, they're handed out like candy. Um, my nephew, he's 20 years old now, but very young. They decided that he suffered from ADHD and, and they put him on Ritalin and stuff and it completely changed his way of thinking. And... He, you know, he's he's twenty, and you know most twenty-year-olds go through a, a rebellion phase, but his is a rebellion phase um, plus Ritalin, um, mm. and it's something. There's no reason, and there's and it's and it's difficult, and you know it hurts me um, because he, uh, you know, he he's a single you know, single mother. My, my my sister's a single mother, and he um. So I always felt like he had to look up to me, and and the fact that he's struggling right now, and, and with that, I, you know, I it hurts a lot. You know, like I feel responsible. You know, even though there's no way I could be, um. But it's one of those things, you know, I feel like. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't tell him don't give him the medication because you know so quick. My mom, she's uh, she's the type of woman that you know the doctor tells her this is what it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what it is. It can't be anything different because this is what a doctor told me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think you speak to a lot of people struggle where, especially when you are trying to get by day to day, and you trust medical professionals, you trust people in power to make the most, um, the best decisions for you. We think, oh, they must have our best interest in mind. They must be the most knowledgeable. And so I have to trust that. And one of the reasons that I started my business, I always said I was never going to start a business. I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to go into private practice. And one of the reasons that I decided that I had to do this was because I wanted to give people the opportunity to feel empowered in their decision-making, especially in their mental and medical health decision-making. Because, you know, whether your nephew has ADHD or not, being able to give somebody resources to say, you know, here's, I say this, I give this to my doula clients all the time. So a doula, for your listeners, is somebody who assists a pregnant person during their pregnancy, labor, delivery, and postpartum, one of the tools that I give them is an acronym called BRAIN. I say, let's use our brains. And what it stands for is, what are the benefits? What are the risks? What are the alternatives? What does my intuition say? And what if we do nothing? And allowing people to ask those questions of their providers, to ask those questions of themselves, gives them an opportunity to make choices that are true for them. And so, yeah, you may not have been able to stop it, but if your sister had been given the tools to ask those questions, what are the benefits and risks for my child? What are alternatives, alternative treatments for a child with ADHD? What is my gut telling me? What is my intuition saying to me? And what if we do nothing or what if we wait? Then maybe the experience that her, you, and your nephew would have had could have looked different. And, you know, I... 
empathize with the struggle because a lot of people close to me have been diagnosed with various conditions, including ADHD, and it's always framed as a negative, especially in schools. If your child has ADHD, oh no, gosh, the kid is going to run around and talk all the time. Teachers have perceptions about them and biases and you know, most of them unconscious. I think teachers, for the most part, are definitely amazing. I was a teacher myself. I know the struggle. But it is difficult when you don't have kids that comply. That's really what it's about is compliance. And so for me, it's been about educating educators that ADHD is a different learning style, not a deficit. And so simply by having people see children who meet the criteria for ADHD or who exhibit symptoms of attention deficit, seeing those children in a more positive light changes a lot of things. It changes the environment for both the teacher and the student. It changes the way that the parents conceptualize their child. So instead of their kid being fidgety and um, having to yell at them all the time because their child can't focus, reframing it to say, oh, my child needs directions, one or two directions at a time, because that's the way I can set them up for success. I have to repeat myself because my child has so much going on that I need to help them focus in this way. You know, making people feel empowered about their choices, helping them see themselves differently than the stereotypes, helping them see themselves from a strengths-based model rather than a a deficiency model is is so helpful and it's not necessarily about avoiding medication or disregarding our doctor's advice. It's about being a, a partner in that treatment. I see. But I still think that the fact that in some aspects we have to question our doctors, that's that's more aligned the problem with our healthcare system, isn't it? Like the fact that we have to think that the doctor's doing this, you know, because he has to see so many patients, you know, or has to have, like you said, has to have a diagnosis within a certain amount of time. And that, that you know, that you may see that in as a mental health professional, but that's probably across the board, correct? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So sometimes, I mean, the fact that we have to, you you may not be able to tell everybody, correct? Well, you know, I, I choose to see things from the positive side. And so, you know, I hear you saying, like, I can't believe that we have to question these people that we trust. I tell my, my nine-year-old daughter, you know, I'm going to tell you stuff, and I want you to ask why all the time. I want you to question everything and everyone, because... What is true for me may not be true for my daughter. What is, you know, the the haves right history, not the have nots. And so we only hear one perspective on a lot of on a lot of things. And with that being said, we have to be advocates for ourselves. We go to people that have knowledge and we get to choose how to decipher that knowledge. We get to question that knowledge. And that's about being an informed consumer. So, you know, I hear people say, well, how can you say that uh, mental health services are a person-based, relationship-based service, but then also say that, compare them to like a purchase? Well, because I'm offering a service, and while it is based on relationships and 
It's client-centered. I'm still offering a service that you get to participate in, that you get to choose how it's done, that you get to choose whether or not you prefer. You get to offer suggestions because this is your life. And so, yeah, you should question your doctor because they have knowledge and you know your body. You know it's right for you. And so you need to know all your options available. And that's what I mean by empowering people. It's not to... um, throw the medical profession or mental health profession um, to the side and disregard its value is to say, I have value as a consumer in this profession. I have value and I have rights. It's all about knowing your rights and knowing um, how to have your rights respected in whatever area you go to for help, whether that's going to your mechanic. They have a special knowledge, but that you may not have and may never have, but you still get to decide whether they fix your car, how they fix your car. You get to decide whether you get a second opinion from another mechanic. And I think the same applies to situations in which we trust people with our bodies and our minds. I agree to a certain extent. And and I'm just based on my experience, because... Recently, I went to uh, an endocrinologist, and everybody says that he's the best. And when you speak to him and his knowledge, he's a really great doctor. He is a doucher, for real. He is the biggest douchebag, and he talks down to people. And, and you know, but he's a great doctor. So, you know... Um, he put me on a, on a testosterone replacement and he looked at me and he told me, listen, you know, if you don't lose weight because you're on this, you're a little fat ass. And, and I was just like, I looked at him like, really? So I had a, another checkup with him and then, you know, I had lost a bunch of weight. And he looked at me, and he goes, you did a good job. And I go, I know, I told you. And it's and I can see his point, too, because he gets so many people that say, oh, I need this, and this is why. And I, I guess I see the, you know, I see his side from it too, because so many people tell him, "Oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that," and sometimes we're not honest when we see our doctors. Mm-hmm. You know, so many times, you know, you, you see a nutritionist. Oh, yeah, I, I, I've been on point. I've been on point, and you're like, "Come on, really?" You know, there's if you were, this would be different, or this, you know. And, and I understand some, sometimes that is the case and sometimes it's not. But I think sometimes it's, you know, people feel that and it's their perception of that person at that time. Yeah, and I think part of being an informed consumer is being accountable. If we want to hold other people accountable, like our doctors and our mental health therapists, we have to hold ourselves accountable. And that, and that means being honest about where we're at and what we need. And I think it's so inappropriate that a doctor would speak to an individual like that, but I know that it happens. And as a doula, I'm constantly advocating for birthing persons who are incapacitated because they're in labor. And, you know, I hear and see things and I talk about, you know, consensual births. So when a woman is in labor, for example, doctors or nurses will perform exams and they may or may not ask to do so that person still has rights. And, you know, part of part of being the informed consumer means 
but sometimes you have to have someone advocate on your behalf. And so you might have been like, okay, him saying that was motivating, so I'm going to do it. But maybe another person he says that to is detrimental. more hurtful and harmful. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and I so, take it, and I, I, I know that, and I took it as motivating. Like I say, he's, and I'm not going to say his name because I actually like him. And mm-hmm. and it kind of spoke to me as well because you're absolutely right. You know, how can I expect, you know, 100% from him if he's not going to get 100% from me? And I see, and that's what he's getting at, you know. So, like I said, I'm not going to get him in trouble. I do know because I actually like yeah, him. Yeah, well, of course. We can respect him and his practice. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, you know, you know, like I said, that might work for you and other doctors might have different styles that work for other people, but essentially it's about a partnership. And so finding somebody that resonates with you, again, finding that opinion if that doesn't resonate with you, finding someone who can advocate on your behalf, especially um, if you know that it might be difficult for you to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned about the labor. And my wife experienced uh, unhappy labor with my son. We um, we had planned when when we were pregnant when she was pregnant with Uriah, we had planned to do a home water birth. Um, mm-hmm. We had seen that that Ricky Lake documentary, the business of being yeah, born. born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we enjoyed it. We watched it probably six times in the time that she was pregnant and we were so excited we were going to you know have a midwife and we had been going to our midwife and our son was early he was uh he came at 34 weeks 34 35 she's going to kill me for not knowing this 100% i think it was i think it was 35 um but when he was born his uh, lungs didn't open they weren't fully developed Mm-hmm. Um, so he had been, he was intubated for 11 days and he was in the NICU and oh, that's, those are, that's, that's horrible right there. But she, the doctor who got, was on call that got called into the hospital, he, um, she did not have uh, a happy labor because she felt that he was, uh, he was bothered. He, you know, he had been woken up. To come, uh huh, and so she didn't enjoy it at all. And she wanted to ask, she wanted me to ask you, what can she do so she does not have a baby induced episiotomy? Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> and I think all, all birthing persons want to avoid that. Um, <laughs> Well, without knowing any of your wife's medical history and without you divulging any of that out of respect for her confidentiality, <laughs> I'll give you generic advice on what I would say to the average birthing person that approached me with that. Um, one, you know, of course, I'm going to say look for a doula. And if you, if you personally want help looking for a doula or any of your listeners want help, I can definitely assist them with that. And your and website I'm sure you'll is... What's your website? It's W www.kayandme.com and that I have resources for um, both doula, therapy, and yoga on that website. But people can reach out to me and I'll help connect them with, I know midwives all over the country. So definitely I can assist with that. But 
back to what I would encourage people to do aside from getting a doula is know what your birth preferences are. So knowing she doesn't want an episiotomy is a conversation that needs to happen before baby comes. It needs to be a conversation with your doctor saying, for example, I don't want an episiotomy. How likely is it that you would do an episiotomy? Under what conditions would you do one? A lot of times, and again, it depends, maternal age, you know, physical health, baby's health, but inductions um, typically are done when a woman goes past a certain amount of time. For some women, that's their due date at 40 weeks. Some women, that's 41 weeks. And when you're looking for a care provider when you're pregnant, these are questions that you'll want to know right away. You know, what is your cesarean rate? How often do you perform inductions? Why and when do you perform them? Because in your first, the situation of your first birth, you know, your baby was born really early, and so you didn't know the doctor that was coming there. And that's why a doula is helpful. She or he can help bridge that disconnect between a doctor and you guys and allow you to take space to make decisions that are best for you in that moment. Because in that moment, I'm sure you guys were both panicked. You have a, a preemie coming. You have a baby in the NICU. You're just worried about everyone's safety and your baby being born alive. And so your ability to have a consensual birth is essentially robbed from you because you don't have an advocate. But if you know that there are steps you can take beforehand to help better prepare you with your care providers, those are absolutely necessary, which is where people start talking about birth plans. So your doctor might not deliver your baby, but if your doctor has agreed that you are, it is within reason that your birth preferences be honored, then you can get a birth plan signed by your doctor. And when you bring it to the hospital, if somebody else delivers, then they know your preferences and you can be reminded of what you talked about with your provider. You can keep a list to remind yourself to advocate for your partner. And, um, you know, in this country, one third of births are cesarean sections, which the World Health Organization says is not appropriate or okay. It's dangerous. And we are in the top fifth or sixth countries in the world for cesarean sections. And there's a lot of implications for, like, cost of that versus uh, maternal health versus child health in the long and short term. But ultimately, if we can avoid unnecessary interventions or utilize only the interventions that are life-saving, then we can have the births we want, even if the births that we envision don't happen in that way. So even if your wife doesn't get to have a home birth, so for example, if you guys were my clients, as a doula, I'd say, okay, let's plan for this home birth and this is how we're going to prep. And also let's plan in case you have a cesarean, not because we want to manifest that or because I believe it'll happen, but so that if it happens, it's still a birth that you feel empowered by. It's still a birth that you can reflect on and say, I had a birth that was mine. I made choices that honored me, my family, and my baby. Okay. I, I got told, I, no, I, well, I, the other day I got told in the car, and I was actually going to play the, play the little clip, but she said, she looked at, she looked at me in, the, in, in my eyes. She looked in the windows of my soul and said, listen, unless I ask you for anything, don't touch me. That's, that's what I was told. Unless, unless I ask you for anything, don't touch me. Just leave me alone. 
So I'm only there to watch. And, I'm an observer. And it's funny that you say that because I've worked with many partners and, you know, some are gung-ho. Like, I really want to help my partner when they're in labor, teach me all the things I need to do or can do. And I have other partners who say, you know what? Go ahead. You can take over. Um, a lot of dads will call me coach. <laughs> I was like, you can take over, coach. And I had a birth that happened a little less than a month ago. And the dad, you know, I taught him all the things to do. And he was super engaged and so supportive. And it was beautiful to watch. And then we get to the point in labor where mom's like, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And she reaches over for me and me and him look at each other. And we laugh because she didn't want her partner to touch her. But it just so happened that my touch was okay. And you never know what you're going to want in labor as a birthing person until you get there. So she says that, but who knows? You stand by and whatever she needs, go for it. Um, I'm not touching that woman. (laughs) Right. Unless she asks you, and then you better get over there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's all about honoring where she's at and making sure that other people don't touch her unless they ask or um, it's about you creating that safe space, whatever that looks like and whatever she wants, making sure that you in the room are her advocate. I, th- I think she, I think she trusts me enough for that. Uh, at least yeah, I hope at I, least I hope so. Well, <laughs> I, I have I'm faith joking. in you. I have faith. <laughs> We uh, we had a uh, not too long ago. We went to um, to the hospital to do our uh, our walk through the birthing unit, and mm-hmm. uh, it was funny because um, you know we feel not that we're experts, but uh, we're okay. We've done this before. We've been here. We we know how to act. And and some of the questions we have, we're like we look we look at each other. We're like, oh, those are new parents. Oh, they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's. It's funny because sometimes, like, I feel like I want to, you know, oh, it's going to be, and it's like, nah, I, you got to let them live because, uh, you know, I, at that point, too, I didn't want anybody telling me what my experience was going to be like or anything. Just let me live, mm-hmm. you know, this, you know, and I know it's, it's so twofold sometimes, and it's with everything. Sometimes people want to hear other people's experiences, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, a lot of people say, well, aren't doulas only for new parents? And, you know, you guys, sure, you're seasoned parents. You, you've had a child in the NICU. You've been through it. And a lot of people hire a doula for their second child or their third and fourth because they want a different experience this time. And so, you know, a lot of people don't want to be told what to do. When I go to a doctor's office or when I go to um, a therapist or a counselor or when I go to a yoga teacher, I don't want to be told what to do. I want to be respected for the knowledge that I have. But I'm looking for you to give me a different experience. I'm looking for you to add on to my knowledge. And so I think um, your point about not telling those parents, oh, don't even worry about that. That's not even a big deal. Or this is what you can expect. I I respect you for respecting their journey. And, um, you know, they'll realize sooner or later where they need help, what's important and what's valuable. And and then they have something else to offer. You know, you guys sounds like could offer more support than than advice because you know how much more valuable support is than advice. It's, I mean, sometimes it is it's where it really is because you know it, it's 
like you said, having a, a child in the NICU is, is one of the worst experiences ever. Mm-hmm. It, you know, but we, we made it through. Yeah, we made it through. Oh, it's scary. It is scary. And it's, it's funny because it, it feels sometimes that I, not that I forget about it, but you, you know, you put it out of your mind and, and you're like, oh, wait, that was, that was very, you forget how bad sometimes are. So, you know, you, oh, you made it through. So, you know, you are stronger. Your experiences make you a stronger person. And sometimes when you reflect, you forget how bad it was at that time. And you don't realize, oh, wait, you know what? Sometimes, maybe back then this was tougher than what I'm going through right now. Mm, to give you context, you're saying. Um, I, the, the quote is, um, what is it? Uh, of course, I'm going to forget it. Right now. I'm going to tell you. Um, tough, time, tough times don't laugh, last, but tough people do. So you know you you go you make it through this experience like you know with, with us our son in the NICU and just the emotions that you're going through because you know you don't know if your child's gonna come home you know at one point we we really didn't but and not that I say I forget about it and you know that I'm not thankful no in that way just you forget at that time that how how everything felt at that minute. Of, you know, just everything coming down and, and, you know, and you feel, how am I going to get past this? And when you get past that, the next time you have a problem, like sometimes you forget where you've been. And, and you got to look back and say, well, yeah, you know what? This, I've done that. This, this is nothing. You know, I've, yeah. I've lived through that. I've survived that. Well, you know, what can this do? You know, it's only going to make me stronger. How resilient, yeah, yes. how resilient we are as people that we can get through really tough, hard stuff and we can come out on the other side with, you know, new skills, new knowledge, new strength. And when we remind ourselves that we've been through some fire, we can, we can definitely approach situations with, um, with our new skills and our new knowledge and, and, and succeed. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I didn't say congratulations on your guys' oh. pregnancy. And Thank you very much. Thank you. For, I'm so excited. It's a baby girl. Yes. Are you guys allowed to say the name right now? Or yes, is that... Isabella. We are. Uh, okay. We don't have a middle name chosen yet, and we have a couple, but Isabella's a hard name to have. Because it ends with a vowel, it's so such a hard name to have a middle name attached to it, we realized. Yeah, my daughter's name um, ends in a vowel, and so her middle name is in a vowel as well. And I yeah. just, I, the, the one name that it's, but it's so common, and, and we look at each other, we're like, we like it, but we don't want to be that basic. What name is it? Uh, Isabella Marie. Oh my goodness, I read your mind. <laughs> like Marie's, it, it, and I, I'm not knocking anybody. Like it's such a beautiful name, it really is. But I don't like six of them. Well, and when was the last time you used your middle name, right? Oh, well. Unless you're in trouble. Let, you know, let me tell you, well, <laughs> my, mom, my mom actually uses my middle name more than my first name. Of course. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I am named um, after both of my grandparents. My middle name is actually her father's name. So that's what she's always called me, you know. And, you know, I'm Juan Miguel. So, but for the most part, it's... Man, you just tripped me out. I'm thinking about it. It's a 50-50 split. Even my sisters, well, depending on... You're right. I think depending on, on, on the tone, it's one name versus the, <laughs> versus the other. Yeah. And again, like, you'll give her a name, but you'll probably call her a nickname anyways. And so, That's so true. you'll like, find something that fits her. My, my son, uh, Uriah, um, we chose Uriah because my name Juan is uh, too common. And her father's name is Juan. My my grand my, my my grandfather, my father. So we were like, yeah, the Juans, um, they gotta go. No more no more Juans for a little bit. So I jokingly told her, I go, man, if we're having a baby boy this time before we found out, I said, if we're having a baby boy, it's gonna be Juan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could always name her Juana, right? <laughs> oh, that's Isabella Juana. That does not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's an idea. Tradition, kind of like a joke, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but my son Uriah, we call him Rai Rai. Mm, mm-hmm. And it and it's all happened because you know my nephew my nephew gave him the name um, when he was uh, when he was like two and uh, Uriah was still a baby. He started talking. Um, he couldn't say Uriah obviously because he was two, so he just said Rai Rai. And we've called him Rai Rai since you know that's like my nephew gave him that nickname and, and none of us would have ever thought about it well you know i love that you bring that up because my name is kaylee it's k-a-l-e-i-g-h no y and my dad heard it in a, an 80s rock song called i love you kaylee <laughs> um and i have a younger brother who's 23 months younger than me and when he was little he couldn't say kaylee because of course that's hard so he called me K. Originally it was KK and then shortened to K. And my business is now K and Me. And I speak about that because, you know, I'm doing really personal stuff with people. Therapy is some of the most intimate relationships that some people have. Doula services, I'm seeing your vagina. You know, I'm watching you bring life into the world. And so K is what my family calls me. K is what the people I love call me. And, you know, that was thanks to my brother who couldn't say my name. And so now my business, I want it to represent a really personal side of me as I offer personal services. And so a name is important, but a nickname can be just as valuable, just as important to someone's identity. So, yeah, you'll find a good fit for your daughter and it'll work. I I think we will. I think we will. That's, wow, that's amazing. So, and if you uh, na- if you name her Juana for a middle name, you'll have to let me know. <laughs> oh, believe me, I, I think you'll uh, you'll be seeing posts more along when she comes oh, on. Yes, of course. I can't wait. Yeah. I'm gonna have a, a, a talk with my buddies. We're gonna have some daddy and daughter uh, uh, hair care services. Because I, I I got a you know I don't have that problem with having a boy. Yeah, uh, having a little girl. We both have very curly hair. Um, you know, it's definitely a struggle to find products, but it's more of a struggle to help her understand how amazing it is. And to have a dad who supports his daughter in that, that's a beautiful thing. So, real, real, real talk. 
I so want my daughter to have long curly hair and I know that I'm gonna hate it but I it's just something about like I love that look I love that hair and I'm like I want her to have that stuff. and I go she's probably gonna hate me if that happens she'll love you later on in life I didn't appreciate my curly hair until much later on in life and you know it has a lot to do with representation Hashtag representation matters will be important and relevant to you when she has curly hair because looking back, um, the first Disney princess that I felt like I looked like was a mix between Pocahontas and Mulan. Everybody else was, you know, straight-haired, fair-skinned. And then Lilo and Stitch came on the scene, and I'm like, ooh, Lilo's sister looks like me. Mm-hmm. And then when my daughter was little, we had the princess and the frog and that was so exciting. And then we get Moana, and my daughter loves Moana because she's got hair just like her. And um, even with Brave, with that red, curly, amazing hair. And so as your daughter comes into this world, there's a lot of representation is growing. And that's really exciting. And, and having a dad who embraces it with her will be part of that journey that she forms her identity. So that's it's all just very exciting that she's going to come into a space where her dad's already excited about it. You know, it, right now, I mean, it's because I have my, I feel like I have my life together. You know, um, had she been born 10 years ago, I don't know. You know, I wouldn't be in this spot. I, I, definitely not, you know. But hell, right, I was scared. Right. I was scared when, when, when uh, we found out we're going to have my son. You yeah. know, I... I Best thing that ever happened to me, and you know, just because it really it changed who I am, you know. And I guess oh, father fatherhood does that to most men, you know. Um, you, you really stop living for you, and you know, and, you, and you're worried about the baby. Yeah. Or at least it should be um, that way. Well, and you know, I had I was pregnant at twenty with my daughter. But I was a college graduate. I knew what I wanted for my life. I knew that I wanted a baby. And so we didn't even touch on that because that's that's amazing in itself. (laughs) Because I mean, to you know, at twenty years old, to be a single, to to raise your daughter by yourself, and to move to another city by yourself. I mean. How? Like, I, I just. I'd love to say that I'm so awesome and that you know I'm just a total bad A. But really, what it boils down to is, um, I was, I I wasn't experienced enough in life to know that it was it could be any different. And so, I went out there because I had a passion and I had a goal and I made it work because there was no other way to me. It, you know, I wanted something and I made it happen and. Um, I wanted to give my daughter a, a great life. I wanted to give her an even better life than I had. I, I, I felt like my parents loved me and they gave me the best they could. And I wanted to do that and more. And so it wasn't even an option about, is this possible? Because I think as we get older, sometimes the question is, is that possible? Is it realistic? And in my head, those never came to mind. Is it realistic? I wasn't even thinking that. It was like, I want to follow my heart and do this for my daughter. And so I made it happen. And you know, I, I feel really blessed that I was just um, unaware of the challenges that were to come. Because if somebody would have told me 
hey, when you go out there, this is what it's going to be like, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I went out there and I faced them as they came. And, um, you know, some people say, oh, I can't believe that you were a single parent and doing that. How would you do that? Well, because there was no other way. <laughs> um, the same way someone has twins and they say, oh, my goodness, how are you going to do that? Well, they're just going to do that because they don't know anything different, you know? I understand. But it, <clears throat> what, just at that age, even at that age, and, you know, I'm most men at their 20s, they hear, hey, you're, you know, the partner or whoever you're with, you're having a baby. It's more, it, most, most of us, because I, I was one of them, at that age, it, it sort of feels like it would be a death sentence. And, well, and, and I might say for some women. It could be. I, I'm just thinking from a male's perspective. I wasn't ready to have a kid, you know, till much later. I, you know, but then again, it's, I grew up in a, you know, very Hispanic community and that seemed to be the norm. And when you see, and you, I had my mother, oh, well, you have a kid this young, you're a failure or anything, you know? So you also have that. Well, and on the contrary, my cousin, um, so I went to a family member's funeral when I was pregnant, and my cousins, who were all within a few years of me, they were on their third and fourth kids, and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm late in the game, you know? <laughs> and, you know, in my head, um, so an example, I looked really young when I was 20. I think I still look You still look extremely pregnant. young. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was pregnant, and I was at... Um, babies are us and a lady goes oh congratulations she's asking me really personal questions because we tend to think that we should know everything about the pregnant person next to us and um she goes oh are you gonna graduate and I said actually um I just graduated and she said oh you're probably not gonna go to college are you and I said wait I just graduated college and she was so shocked by this and it's just funny because in my mind, I was so grown. So how could people not see that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like, oh, wow, my cousins, they're already on their third and fourth. This is, you know, this is normal. This is average. And, you know, I already have a degree and I'm already on my way to a career. So for me, I was in, I think, a very different place than maybe some 20 and 21-year-olds are. You definitely um, were because I'm... <laughs> And you know, it's all part of it's all part of the journey, right? You know, some 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 people are ready for something, you know, at different at different times in their life. And I was ready for that when it came, thankfully. And um, I love being a mother. I love, you know, I say to my daughter that my goal as a mother is to always be able to carry her emotionally and physically for the rest of her life. And so I stay physically fit. So I can honor that promise, and I joke that in the in the apocalypse that I'll be able to carry her if she needs me to. But also, I feel like I embrace motherhood because it's what I wanted, and I'm able to give her the kind of mom that she deserves because I was ready. Wow, that's that's beautiful. I am. Um, I I say that I tell my son all the time, and he. <clears throat> He looks at me. He goes. Um, he he wants me to get into to a cartwheel. 
because he loves, I got him into capoeira recently, um, mm-hmm. and he loves doing capoeira, and he wants me to get in the cartwheel. So, you know, in my garage, I have a little gym set up with mat space, and I try, and every time he, he goes, oh, keep on trying, keep on trying, daddy, keep on trying, we, we'll get there together. And that's, you know, that's, that's you know, building that relationship with my son is, is, I feel, similar to what you have with your daughter. And those are the the parenting moments that we live for when, you know, there's something, a connection so beautiful that it doesn't even need words and you're just grateful for their being and the lessons they teach you and the love that you guys share. It is. Well, um, on that note, I guess, um, Kay, where can everybody reach you again? Yes. So um, you can find me at kandme.com that's k-a-y-a-n-d-m-e dot com I'm also on Facebook at kandme wellness Um, I have an Instagram and it has some periods in it so it's k period a period y period underscore and m period e period (laughs) Um, for an easier way if you just go to my website you can click on the Instagram link there um, and if people want to email me, that's kandmewellness at gmail.com. So I'm pretty accessible. If you're in the Las Vegas area, at the beginning of July, I'm going to be having an event. I call it my launch party to launch my new brand. But also, I'm all about engaging and connecting community. So at this event, I'll have a meet and greet, and there will be food, there will be waffles, and then I'll teach a um, yoga and meditation class and all of the proceeds from that class will be um, directed towards a scholarship and I'll be announcing a scholarship for a birthing person to receive doula services from myself who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it and then I'm going to do a Q&A panel with myself and a few other wellness professionals in the community of diverse backgrounds and I'll Facebook live that so even if you can't make it to Vegas at least you can watch the Facebook Live version of the Q&A panel, and you can write in questions beforehand. So if you email me questions, I'll answer them during that panel, and the other people will as well. So there's tons of ways to stay connected, and I'm hoping to host events um, not only in Vegas, but potentially elsewhere. I'm traveling to Maine in a few months and hoping to do a few pop-up yoga classes out there. Um, yeah, I'm in California all the time, so essentially... If you, if you ever make it to Florida, um, let me know. We could do um, find, a, find a place to do yoga or whatnot. Oh, for sure. And people can request classes if they want. I believe that sometimes um, locations can be barriers, so I'm all about bringing yoga to the people. And if I'm ever in Florida, we will for sure do one together, and um, we'll make it a make it a thing in the community and it'll be amazing so that'd be awesome yeah you know i'll reach out to you for sure definitely thank you very much and again congratulations i look forward to seeing pictures of baby and to continue seeing journey your journey evolve and um and honoring and and celebrating all your victories likewise likewise i you know i love seeing Really, all your yoga posts because they—you just posted one not the other day with a, a wooden 
it looks like a, 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 a. Oh yeah, it's a hammock that's not finished. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Yeah. I thought it was a yoga. <laughs> I thought it was a a, would, a a yoga tool. I was like, I've never seen that. Now that you say it's a hammock, it absolutely makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, man, that looks beautiful. I go, man. And then I started, because I've been watching woodworking videos online. And I'm like, man. I go, I wonder how they made that. And I'm, so, <laughs> it's a hammock. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, like I said, my Instagram was never meant to inspire people or to show my skills. It always has been and I think always will be a place for me to be raw and authentic and it's my journal and so um thank you for always respecting my my journal my 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 words and my message you're welcome um and i think it's it's very what you're doing and, and is very positive and it's it's helping a lot of people i believe come out of their shell you know mm-hmm. um I've had one person reach out to me and tell me that you know, between this podcast and, and what I post on Facebook is helping him get in the gym. And, and you know what? Even if it's for that, just one that one person, you know, I'll continue doing this. And, you know, if I can help, like I said, reach one person, it's worth it. Yeah. And if, and if I can close this out, I'll say one of my life mottos is actually um, something Tupac said. And he said that he'll plant the seed in the mind of the person who will change the world. And so if I can plant seeds and someone changes the world because of a seed I planted, then I'll have won at life. I'll have done my due diligence. And ultimately, um, I can be satisfied with myself if I plant seeds. And so that's all we can do, right? Plant seeds and help they grow. Yes. And then on Tupac. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So... Yeah, thank you again for having me today. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fat Boy Podcast. Have a nice day.